Hello, and welcome to the Sync Lodge podcast series, Exploring Music, where we explore the obscure, where we delve in deep into the great but maybe not so known music and the industry that, for better or worse, supports it. My name is Lionel Lodge, and I will be your reluctant moderator, preferring to let my guests do most of the speaking. Now, we would like to point out that in the text description of this episode, there is a playlist link to all the music that is discussed and mentioned during the conversation. For this episode, which is titled Tour Musicians, we are very fortunate to have with us John Althram and Mike Patrick. John Althram is CEO, music supervisor, and film composer at Soundwave Studios in London, which is a premium music production company providing bespoke music to high-end production companies with their team of award-winning composers, orchestrators, engineers, and producers who are able to provide music across multiple film genres. John has been involved in many aspects of the music industry before joining Soundwave, including casting professional at Star Now, panelist for the Warner Music Group Soundboard, artist manager for award-winning instrumentalist Nyrus, and freelance music supervision and freelance music composition. Welcome, John. Hi, Lionel. Thank you for having me. And joining John is Mike Patrick, a recent addition to the Soundwave Studios team. Is a keyboardist, composer, arranger, and producer who started playing music as a toddler on a home electric organ his father bought. Growing up, he developed a keen ear for exploring and developing sounds. Enjoying film and animated music especially, he architected his own unique sound, demonstrating a signature level of emotion through his playing. Mike is the first British musician to create a sound bank for the renowned Swedish keyboard company Nord which shows the level of respect he has given for his knowledge of keyboards and programming. Mike has not only spent extensive time in production and arranging, but also touring internationally as keyboard player with top artists including Jake Bug, James Arthur, The Streets, and more. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Lionel. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking about tour musicians and touring and stories, but also we're going to be going into some of the lessons that people need to know people that are setting out or the how-to's i think it's going to be a, a mix of everything yeah, isn't it? I was going to say, i'm sure you've got quite a few stories there, to there's, tell. there's going to be yeah the 101s and there's going there are going to be stories yeah i mean when it comes to touring there's always some kind of story which right. is like right. always interesting so yeah definitely stories yeah and you've, you've recently now over the last couple of years is it longer than that you've been touring with some quite well-known artists yeah i would maybe say the last seven years you kind of go through as a musician you go through that period where you learn the ropes and you do the open mics the gigs that kind of get you on your way and then the big doors open and the touring eventually does happen and yeah i'd probably say the last seven years Mm -hmm. has been touring years is this europe wise uk wise uh it's international actually Mm -hmm. yeah it's yeah. Definitely. Did you get over to the states? Yeah, I've been to the states a few times. I've uh, been to Brazil. Went to Mongolia, which was interesting. Oh, nice. Mainly in general, it is normally the UK and the EU, but there are international tours that come about sometimes. But yeah, definitely UK and EU are the most popular places mm-hmm. for touring. Mm-hmm. But Mongolia, yeah, there's a story in that one as well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've never been to Mongolia, and I have this picture of horses and desert. I'm sure it's not like that at all. There's a lot of desert. Yeah, yeah. I remember coming. I mean, it was probably five, six years ago, 
Um, but I remember coming from the airport, we were driving, and there was just a lot of desert. And it was quite surprising to see, because obviously you think, forgive me if it's a narrow way of thinking, but it's you always expect to see loads of massive buildings and stuff like that. But there is there is a lot of um, a lot of desert, yeah, there is. So um, I don't know what it's like now, but five years ago it was like that. You played in, a, I guess, a major centre. Or was, um, was it some smaller places too? It was quite a big, I think it was 60,000 at the time. I oh, think that's, that's a good size. Yeah. I mean, going straight into story time, I'm not going to say the band, but, mm-hmm. but it was a situation where we um, we got there at 12 o'clock and the show was supposed to start at 7. We did spend a lot of time setting up and we got into the first song eventually and didn't realise that they'd set up pyrotechnics. And so as we started to play, the pyrotechnics went off, <laughs> cut all the power. We had to go off stage and um, we, we were in like a little tent and the lights were flickering. And it turned out we weren't able to do the show because <laughs> what was happening, we didn't realise that we, we were, I suppose we were working as Brits was working together with them out there to get everything together. And they spent, I think, five hours setting everything up and didn't tell anybody that there was pyrotechnics there. Wow. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. It was it was a very big gig, very, very big gig. Um, but I think in the end, because of certain situations, we had to kind of reschedule. So, um, yeah, that was one I'll never forget. No, I don't think <laughs> yeah, you sure. would. Sure. <laughs> it's very interesting when you come together and you realise that. And I suppose that's the most important part, that you both have to come into an agreement and understand this is what we want to do and this is how we're going to do it. And I suppose that day there was a bit of a miscommunication. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, but yeah. We, we just didn't know about the pyrotechnics. So pyrotechnics went off and all the sound went down. Literally. <laughs> literally. I'll never forget it. And it, I think the first song... Oh, I can't say the first song. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember the first song. Yeah, it, it was... Um, yeah, it was really something. I think we drove back to the hotel and we did have a few cars accompanying us, kind of saying what happened. And yeah, it, it was a great day, but I think in the end they had to go back and do that show again, uh-huh. which was good for the audience. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, 60,000 people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, it, was, it, was a good, it was a good experience because it is also you still do learn in those situations about touring and about what you have to be clued up about and in terms of communication and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. Yeah. It was a one-on-one lesson in terms of what to be prepared for. Yeah. And I expect when you're touring, you're on a level with a lot of these bigger name artists that there's a lot of the elements taken care of for you. Yeah. The good thing that I've really been blessed to experience is that I'm currently touring with a few different bands. Mm-hmm. So each band I tour with deals with things differently. But at the same time, it's, it's pretty similar. Over the weekend, I just got back with the streets. And this year we did Glastonbury and we got to headline. And we went to Dublin on the weekend. We got to headline Electric Picnic, which was pretty cool. And it's really interesting because you get to see some really cool bands and you really get to see how they do things and how mm-hmm. they work. And yeah, I mean, festival season is the best time of the year because you really get to rub shoulders with some great bands and yeah. sometimes pick their brains a little bit as well. Festivals are great that way. You also, yeah, yeah. you know, if you're doing one set and then you're off and, and you get to go around and see all these other artists that maybe you wouldn't have a chance to see. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget, I think it was two years ago, we did a festival and Paul McCartney was headlining and we got to play just before he went on. Nice. And it was, I mean, I'm, I, everybody backstage, it got to the point where I think when he went to go on stage, everybody kind of just, just clapped, <laughs> which was really nice. And he, and he is genuine. You know, you hear about these people and you wonder if they're, 
nice guys. He seems like a great guy as well. Yeah, he's he always does. Helps. Yeah. He seems like a great guy, actually, which is uh, great to see. You know, yeah. After his legacy and everything, he could be the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. You you do see it sometimes, but I, I, it's like he is the type of person where if you did run up to him, I mean, if you got past his security first, yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't. You know, he would he would still talk to you. Yeah. He seems that way. Yeah. There, there was that TV show of. Uh, What's the guy's name where he's in a car and he gets stars and they sing along with the stars? Oh, yeah, James Corden. James, James Corden. Corden. Yeah. Did you see the Paul McCartney one on that? Yeah, I, I yeah, that I was did. good. That goes to the pub. Yeah, yeah. The jukebox and the curtain opens. <laughs> yeah, because he went back to his hometown, didn't he? In Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. Back, back to the original pub, yes. some pub that he used to play and, and just sort of. Yeah. And there's like, like 10, 15 people in the pub at first. Yeah, and James Gordon is on the bar and he tells people, "Here, somebody go put something in the jukebox." Yeah, <laughs> we met him actually at an event, and he, he's another really cool guy. Yeah, I'd expect. I'd yeah. expect he wouldn't be able to get these people in if he wasn't. You know? Yeah, this this is it. I, I remember uh, we was at a, like an event, and a friend of mine, or well, distant friend, she was DJing, and James was like doing his dance moves on the dance floor. And she's never met him, and he kind of comes up to the DJ booth, and before even obviously he he has a request, but before he even asks the request, they both just start kind of dancing for like a minute and a half. And then he obviously says, "Oh, have you got this song?" Which was just really cool because we just spent like a minute watching him and my friend, which had never met, just both dancing in front of the DJ booth, which was quite really cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a great guy as well. Yeah, a lot of fun. He's yeah. very positive. It's good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Where have you toured the most? Would you say more mainly around Europe or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely Europe. Yeah. It's bad because I, when I I go to Europe, I get really excited because it just. I did a tour. I mean, I think two years ago and like eight out of ten venues were venues I've done before oh, okay. which was nice for me because yeah. I just every time you go to certain places you remember oh this is where I first did this tour and mm -hmm. they, and it was great and I played this and yeah oh, nice. it's really nice but it's, it's been cool kind of checking out some new places as well yeah so I've got this app on my phone called BIN B-E-E-N and it basically lets you mark the map of where you've been Oh, okay. and gives you a percentage which is pretty cool yeah yeah, yeah so it's nice but i've never heard of that actually. yeah I, I, someone told me about it and i i suppose it was strange for me because i never expected to be a musician i kind of feel like music sometimes picks you and it's this thing where you you i in my head i was always like i'm going to work in an office and on the 28th of every month i'm going to get this amount of money mm. and it just didn't go like that at all so being a musician and then touring and being able to travel was such like a pleasant surprise. It was like, yeah, yeah I just didn't plan on actually traveling and it's it's been great. Yeah, so, yeah, I, nice. I really like logging down where I've been able to go and stuff. It's been mm. pretty cool. You know, most musicians go through that phase where their parents start worrying about their futures, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's the same with yeah. most people in music, yeah. actually. Fair, isn't I it? went through that. I went through. It was strange because my my dad had a hobby of I'm a I'm obviously a piano player. He had a like a natural he enjoyed keyboards but he couldn't play and so he believes that kind of he's a, he were he's a religious religious family or mm -hmm. go to church so he believes that god's allowed him to see a dream through me i'm his eldest son mm -hmm. which is pretty pretty cool but when it got to the point where i was like i want to do music full time he was he's a bit old school which is fair and he mm -hmm. said 
you know, I don't see how music's going to put food on the table. So he mm-hmm. said, yeah. after high school, go to college and do something else. If you still want to do music, we'll see. So Which is smart, because yeah. the majority yeah. of musicians do not make a living at it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's like, and, it, and I remember going to church and saying to like one of the, the older ladies, oh, can you do music full time? And she said, no, we don't do that because it's secular music and it's that whole thing and the thing with my parents which was great they never stopped me from playing secular music or anything like that they just said you do what you want to do which is great Um, but I went to college and did graphic design and finished and I was still wanting to do music Mm -hmm. so I went to uni to do music the only issue is I'm an ear musician so my reading and my technique was bad so when I went they said okay you've got to read these books and your reading needs to be here and I managed to get my reading up um, and I did a few years and to be honest with you uni was great because it helped me develop the kind of sound I have mm. I have quite a contemporary sound these mm. days because I was around a lot of contemporary players uni also helped me realise what I didn't want to do because even though it was great doing a BA in music that's not where my heart was at so I started hanging around the London circuit and going to little gigs and I used to go with a friend who used to play drums in a band and I'd help him set up the drum kit and he used to do all the gigs and I'd just sit and listen. And in one of the gigs, the keyboard player got in a car accident, which was unfortunate for him. It was fortunate for me because I knew the songs. So um, I got to jump on and play. And off the back of that, people were saying, oh, I didn't know you could play. Could you come and do this? And that was kind of me starting at the very... And playing from ear. This is... Uh, yeah. You know, developing that as an approach to music is yeah. a, a great tool to have. Yeah. The thing that I had to learn as well, and there's a niche for this, is that I'm a gospel musician. So, like, a lot of us gospel musicians like to bring that gospel sound everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. And there comes that time where you have to learn. You can't throw it in everywhere. And, um, yeah, some musicians still struggle with that. So I think my early years was when I was playing all the, the colours. And sometimes people would be like, oh, that's great. And other times they'd be like, can you not put that in there? So I had to kind of learn when and where to kind of do it, which was great. So by the time the pop gigs kind of came in and the touring came in, I knew how to turn it on and how to turn it off mm-hmm. and where to put it. Which is obviously really uh, appreciated by the people that you're playing on stage yeah. with, right? That yeah, you can yeah. Not just do your thing all the time, that you can yeah. fit in just to support like, them yeah and pick your moments and, and it's like it really is it, it's a good tool to have but I think it's great when you can you know when to add it because it, we can play eight songs yeah and in the, the last song I can put some stuff in and it makes people realise oh wow like, I didn't even know that was in the tank whereas if I'm going from song one yeah. giving it all I've got then you know by the time I get to song eight I'm like oh I'm a bit bored of this yeah Yeah. well it's so important I think that's where it goes from you know another level of musicianship and discipline because you really you know you've got that tool bag up till now and it's just about picking and choosing when the best time is to do and it's almost like an it gets to the point where it's almost natural intuition where yeah. you're just like oh it feels right and yeah. then we put it in it's like from my background I started off as a as a drummer and you could imagine if you know you opened off and you would you know put in every fill you could think of yeah, you know yeah. in the first couple of bars it would just be chaotic you know yeah chaotic. It's so true. Um, which is just like a social setting where if some you sit down and you just meet somebody and they start telling you how great they are yeah they, they don't stop it gets really boring quickly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk to them about other things for a while and you got to know them you like the person 
yeah. and then you ask him a few questions, you realize, actually, wait, wait a second. Yeah, this guy is, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a good. That's a really good. Yeah, it's bizarre. Actually, we're quite alike in the sense that you used to draw an ear musician. Um, oh yeah, because yeah, yeah. I really struggle with my, you know, it's my sight reading and stuff. It was one of the reasons why I didn't go to university to study music. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would have loved to, but I found it quite difficult. I did um, not alone. I, I did struggle. I had an exam just quickly, and they said you have to sight read this piece of music. Yeah. And I, str- I, I really, str- I. I didn't cheat, but because my ear was so good, yeah, I kind of was able. I think they play it for you once, and that was enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's how I got around it yeah. in, the, in the exams and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. It was interesting because they had little rules like they gave piano lessons to all the piano players, which I was really excited about because I never got piano lessons. I always kind of kind Just of learned. learned, and I developed some really bad technique, which I didn't yeah, realise until I got yeah. the piano lesson because I was playing, I've got quite long fingers, so I don't need to use my little finger on my right hand, which you're supposed to. So mm. I was playing like that all the time with just four fingers. And the teacher got a pen and was like, your hand should be like this. And he poked in my hand and said, <laughs> which, was, which I didn't mind because I was interested. Yeah. I just realised where the flaws were and it was quite interesting. But they also had a rule of you had to sing in the choir and if you didn't sing in the choir, you didn't get piano lessons. Wow. You know, I was quite immature, but I always felt, oh, singing, oh, singing is for girls, which is definitely not, but mm-hmm. we were singing all these hymns and stuff, which I kind of despised at the time because I was itching to get out of church every weekend because I just wanted to kind of sure. be like a, what they call a normal kid. But mm-hmm. yeah. all of that stuff is my strengths now, like playing hymns and stuff like that, really. It's so, funny that, eh? Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. I just well, how it, that turns around. It's so strange. I used to go to church every weekend and they'd sing all of these hymns and I used to hate playing them. Literally this morning, I've been writing some piano stuff for myself and uni was great because it taught me how to write for strings, which I found out I really like strings and I really enjoy writing for strings. And so I was writing a hymn this morning, or type like a, an old hymn just to go on a small EP that I want to do and stuff. But yeah, it's just funny how things turn around. Mm-hmm. It really is. So, John, you started as a drummer. Yeah, so that was the first instrument I started playing. What sort of drumming did you start with? It was kind of quite broad, really. I did an example called Rock School. I mean, you probably heard of it as well. Really, for drums, you've got that and Trinity Guildhall, which are like the main examples. And they do everything from funk, fusion, a bit of jazz, more heavier rock stuff. But what was quite nice with how they wanted to do it was that they had a section in the middle of the music where you could just improvise or just ad-lib your own stuff and it was really about expressing yourself a little bit more than just playing everything note for note all the time which for me at that time I was really young anyway but it was perfect because I really loved sometimes just putting my headphones into one of my favorite tracks and just you know playing along and that's how I learned and I kind of developed my ear for you know when it feels right to put a certain thing in a certain place or you know just mess about with the timing or whatever so it was quite a quite a bizarre one really (laughs) so I started off from a my grade four and then went through and did all the grades and then went into playing the saxophone oh, wow. um, alto sax I didn't know that <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was a bit of a um, how old were you at this point when I played sax maybe 15 or 16 mm-hmm. I think I'm not sure <laughs> uh, something, uh, something around that age um, definitely when I was a uh, 
in my early teens, I'd probably say. And that was interesting. And what was nice was because you develop that rhythm coming from the drums and then you're trying to build on the melody aspect through mm-hmm. something completely different. And that really crippled me from a sight reading point of view. <laughs> you know, I really did struggle. But it's a great thing to start with the drums and have that understanding of rhythm and have that understanding of timing yeah. and take it to a melodic instrument. Yeah, I did find that definitely much easier. And then from there, when I started playing the piano, self-taught from a rhythmic point of view and and in terms of also incorporating your feet into what your hands are doing was much easier because I'd I'd done it in the past with drums. So let's get back on topic a bit with touring. So a few early lessons of things that you picked up along the way for first timers that are going to start going out and looking at touring. I'd say this, I think. When I was young, and I, and I still think this is the case, a lot of us young musicians or eager musicians, we all think it's about playing and about the gear that you have. And I used to always say to people, how do I get into touring? And people would always say, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And I hated the answer because it wasn't, to me, it wasn't like, okay, I just do that and do that. I remember I'd ask everybody all the time and they'd all say, I don't know, you just have to be in the right place at the right time. And to be honest, it is that, because as time went by, when I look back, I was like, okay, I was in the right place at the right time. But one thing I, I did ask one person and they said to me, you're in the show business. And they said, the word business is bigger than the word show. And they said, you have to make sure your business mind, you have a business mind. It's like anybody can play. And it's like these days, everybody can play and everybody's incredible, but it's, you have to understand what sets you back. And I began, sets you apart, sorry. And I began to realize that as time went by, I got into a position where I was in charge and they would say, I need a band. And I'd find that I'd always be looking for the ones that wouldn't give me any grief. Mm-hmm. And it was just quite funny, the ones that weren't late. And, and some the hard thing for me that I found personally is that I had a lot of friends that could play and all the close friends. I, and, and don't get me wrong, sometimes I'll call them, but there was a time where I was like, I need to call that person that I know will just be on time and won't give me any kind of grief. And so I think in terms of touring, it's great. It's easy to get the right gear. It's easy to be ready. But I think things like when people email you or call you, always answer your phone. Obviously, the main one, don't be late. Mm-hmm. I, I had to learn that. I learned a hard lesson about not being late. Um, and you, usually being not being late is being 10 minutes early. Yeah, that is. It's, and they say if you're on time, you're late. It's the little things like that. Even things like when people email you forms or the main one is we need a scan of your passport. Now I have a, a scan of my passport on my phone. So anytime anyone needs it, just little things like that. It's the admin side, the business mm-hmm. side, yeah. because everybody can play. And yeah, you need to be able to play to a certain. Now that's an interesting thing to have a ready scan of your passport yeah. because you get get asked for it. No matter what, I I keep my passport with me everywhere I go just in case. It's like you you never know. Um, it's just things like that. Emails when people email you, email them straight back. Be as far as you can. You know, even if it's just them saying, "Okay, rehearsal's been moved from eight o'clock to seven o'clock." I'll always say, hi, just confirm the receipt of your email. Thanks, see you tomorrow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Things like that. People, they might not respond back and say, oh, thank you. So, but in their mind, they're like, I notice he's always on it. Well, then they, they know right away that, okay, that I've connected. He knows it and I don't yeah. have to think yeah. about that again, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, and there's little, I mean, there's more subtle things where I also learned that is people respond to you when you respond to them. So sometimes when it, someone's looking for something, even if you can't do it, just to sympathize with them. So good example, last week I got an email and someone said, hi, you've been highly recommended 
for a show. Uh, we've got an artist, he's new and he's gonna do a few shows. And they said, um, can you make these dates? And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry, I can't make these dates, but do you need help? Maybe finding some, I might be able to help you find somebody. And they said, no, it's fine, we've got it. We've already got some, I think we've got a few other people in mind. So I said, no worries at all. A few days later, they emailed me back and said, hi, we've been trying to get these people, they're not available. Could you still give us a hand? So I said, yeah. I said, also, you know, what's the situation? And they said, well, we've got five dates, three days will be rehearsals and two days will be shows. And they said, our budget is 250 pounds. So I said, oh, is that per day? So they said, no, that's for the whole thing. Wow. That's very, very low. Yeah. Yeah. That's very low. And so at that point, I was like, if you can push it up, I'll be able to help. But it's highly likely that I won't be able to find anybody for that price. Because technically, they're going to be working for free kind of thing. So in the end, I said, I'm I'm not going to be able to help at that fee. And they said, well, that's all we can give. But at the end of the day, I've given all the help I can. And I've kind of tried to sympathize with what they're trying to achieve. And they said, well, you know what? If things change down the line, we'll give you a call. You yeah, know, same and, thing. And you never know. You yeah. never know how the, the person you were talking to, where they're going to be in a two yeah. years' time and what kind of position and, and just having that in the back of the mind that you yeah. were positive, you are easy to work with, yeah. responded quickly, right? This this whole thing goes a long way. Yeah, definitely, definitely does. It definitely yeah. does. And I think um, it's easy to say, but you have to try your best to be quite humble. Someone said to me, someone that thinks they're humble calls themselves humble isn't humble. So, mm-hmm. yeah. There's an old joke. I used to be conceited, but I fixed that. Now I'm perfect. <laughs> I like that one. But it is very much about the business side. In my generation, when I was coming up, everybody was just like, it was all about the play and how well you can play. But the way pop is and certain genres, it's like you don't even need all of the technical stuff. Yeah. A lot of the time with touring, you just need to just... You just need to have something different about your playing, but it really is about the business side. And I've heard management always say, we just want people that are easy to get on with, yeah. that don't stress the artist out. I play for several artists and I've noticed all three of them, um, I can say they just don't want to deal with stress. And I've heard a lot of situations where band members will stress out an artist. And so I think it's also about being able to gel with other people yeah. and kind of just- and put your ego in the back. Yeah, you know, yeah, this is... yeah. I do my best, I try, I don't know how well I do, but I try to kind of keep my ego in check and not to be too prideful, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And if I ever feel like that pride thing is kicking in, I try and wrestle it to the ground because I don't think it's a great thing. Yeah. You know, they always say pride come before a fall. Yeah. You know, that's an old one as well. Yeah. My parents, I'm sure I've heard them say that a few times. I, I try my best and I think when you are, you put yourself to the side and you try and you're mindful of other people around you, people do recognize that as well. So, it goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely does. So I just think in terms of business, get the business mind right. And it, again, you still have to be in the right places at the right time. But once that all comes together, you're winning. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I agree. If you keep things in a business kind of minded approach, not too much, but yeah. generally if you, you go over that, you're going to be a little bit more organized and you kind of know what's going on as well. And I think, I think it always has been like that in the industry, but with how it's changed um, in terms of, let's say from a technology point of view, it's a little bit more important now. So like maybe in the past, you might have someone that's representing you, you know, record labels are even more prevalent and even more important yeah, know, back yeah, in the yeah. days with, with those bands. Whereas now there's a lot of independent artists out there, a lot of independent musicians who can generally just create a portfolio themselves or at least build a portfolio themselves yeah. with the technology and, and basically the internet that's out there, which yeah. is, you know, a great opportunity to have. But as a result, got a really in 
and just be like, actually, now I'm the business. Yeah. No yeah, one's selling yeah. this for me. I've, <laughs> I've got to do it. And I think that's quite important, especially, you know, from an artist management side of things. When you see, see artists and they're struggling, it's about finding that sonic signature first, looking at it from a brand point of view. It doesn't mean you have to mold to be like everyone else. Yes. But what makes you special is that, you know, the same about you as a touring musician. What's your little flair? What have you picked up in the past through your gospel playing and, and everything else which makes you slightly different? Yeah. And it all adds to that business element. The business side of it is, like you're saying, there's a lot of independent artists that need to be their own business side. They need to mm. actually somehow be a little bit of a record label, somehow be a yeah. little booking agent, somehow be a yeah. management. But you will get to a point where hopefully there's other people that are working with you. And the same thing as yeah. Mike was saying, is is being humble about it and not yeah. Yeah. be having this prima donna element to it. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, it's well, one thing a manager said to me is, is there could be a dozen people I want to work with, but I'm going to pick the one that's going to be the last hassle for me. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, they're all talented. They all have good things. But I don't want to work with somebody for two years and the whole thing come crashing down because the person is just, yeah. you know, thinks too highly of their position and the industry is filled with people, right? I'm like, hearing, yeah. even now, even now I'm hearing stories and it, the way the music scene goes, it's almost in waves kind of thing. So there'll be like a generation of musicians that just do things a particular way. And a few years ago, there was a generation of musical directors and tour managers that would pretty much straight up launder money or they'd be cutting off the top and kind of keeping it for themselves. And it started to come to the surface and all of these guys now are struggling for work yeah. because it always comes to the surface anyway. Yeah. But they're blacklisted, nobody really wants to work. And yeah. it's to get into it, even like there's accountants and there's people I've played for and we've got emails saying, look guys, we need you to re-invoice for X, Y and Z because we found out the accountant was taking money and we have to redo our books and we have to, oh, wow. yeah, okay. and it, it's very- Integrity is a big thing. Yeah. yeah. From a personal side, from a playing side, you know, yeah. from the business side. Yeah. yeah. And as you lose that- That's it, yeah. Right? I'm so glad you said that because it has to be said because no one ever told a lot of us that all you have is your pride and your word. And if you say you're going to be here and you're going to do X, Y, and Z, all I can do is believe that's what you're going to do because that's what you've said. And I think we've got to a generation now where Unfortunately, there's a few musicians where they're not accountable and they just say, I feel like this, so I'm not going to do this. Or I'm the important one and they can yeah. wait. Yeah, it was strange because when I first started out, when you first start out on the scene, you have to do a couple of favours and you're the underdog. And I used to go to rehearsals where it was almost like you were ruled by fear. And I don't know if people know this, but especially in the pop scene, there's a lot of environments where it's, it's like you're in a small room and you're there for eight hours and there's no windows and it's like, let's run the songs again. There was one particular MD that would be like on his phone while you're playing, he'd be like, oh, sorry, I didn't hear that. Can you play it again? And you're playing it round and round. I was like, oh, why does that sound like that? And it's like, well, this is the only sound I have. He's like, well, you've got to change it now. So you're like, oh, can I just program my keyboard later on? He's like, no, it's all right, we'll wait. And you're in a small room and you've got like four other band members that are sitting there waiting, watching you. And it, there was a season where all of these gigs, you were ruled by fear. And that's how it was, and it and it wasn't very good because um, a lot of these guys didn't have any integrity. It was just very much about I'm on top, and I'm going to make sure I'm on top by making you afraid of me. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it becomes a thing of crabs in a barrel, and everyone's just clawing to get out kind yeah. of thing. You know, I was in it for quite a while, and I made a decision. I said, you know, this is what I want to do. I'm just going to hang in there. But then when you go on tour, it gets worse because alcohol's involved and drugs are involved, and it was very much about just people being I'm afraid because I want to make as much money as I can because there's not much money in this anyway and 
I'm going to make sure no one else surpasses me kind of thing. So I remember doing one tour and after that tour, I said, I'm not working with these people again. And it was very much in the pop world. And then I kind of had a door with Jake Bug, which is he's not as pop. He's more kind of country. Yeah, kind very of, interesting. Right? Yeah, it was the best tour I did because I, when I first auditioned, I mean, he's quite a quiet. When you don't, when you know someone, he's quite quiet. I went to the audition. A cousin of mine is good friends with him which was quite funny because he told me the story in the end. He said, look, your cousin said, ah, oh. he said, he apparently said to my cousin, I need a, a piano player because I'm going to go on tour. I'm going to add piano to the band. So my cousin said, oh, I know a guy, my cousin, he's a wicked. And you know, anyone that says that, you're thinking, oh God, who's he talking yeah, about? Yeah. So it's your cousin then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So cousin said, look, Jake Bugs looking for a piano player. Go for it. He said, please don't embarrass me. I said, I'm not going to embarrass you. So I got the songs. He, they sent me a video of a, a Royal Albert Hall gig and I kind of ripped that to audio and just went to bed listening to it. Because I, I, he said, look, check online. He's got a lot of dates of touring. So I went online on Google and wrote in Jake Bug dates. And he had 18 months of just going absolutely everywhere. So I was in my head, I was like, I need to do this. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. And I kind of went and played the songs. And then... Um, had you heard of him before that? I, you know what, I hadn't. I knew his music, but I had I was really bad with names. Right. I knew, like, Lightning Bolt is, like, yeah. a real... Like, even my mum knows it, and she, yeah. you know... And... Um, but I didn't know who he, who he was. But I, when I checked him out and I listened to I was like, oh, I recognise his music. So, yeah, I just thought, this is something I can do. And the good thing about it is it was different. So I went to the audition, and he barely spoke to me. He just said, oh, let's try Chapel Town. You play it, and he said, "All right, let's try Kinpin. Play that song." And then after a while, he was he was like, "Oh, we've got a, a guitarist coming in as well. Do you mind just continue playing keys?" I said, "Yeah, that's fine." So they auditioned the guitarist. They had two guitarists. They both went, and then he was talking to his band about them, and saying, "You know, but this person does this well." And then he said, "Mike, what do you think?" So I said, "Oh, I, well, I like the first guitarist because wow. X, Y, and Z." He said, "All right." And then he went quiet for a while and he said, look, um, I'm going to be playing some of my new songs to, to the band. Do you just want to hang around? So it was almost like in my head, it was an unofficial way of saying, you know, I like you kind of thing. Yeah, you're... I didn't hold my breath. I said, yeah, sure. You know, that's fine. So I stayed and we went through some of the new songs. And then I went home and the manager called and said, yeah, he, you know, he really likes you. And then um, we got into rehearsals and he kind of said to me, he shook my hand, he said, mate, like, well done. He said, I promise you we're going to travel the world together. And I, by that time, I'd already heard so many artists say that. They always say, oh, we're going to yeah. travel the world. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So by that time, I was like, yeah, whatever. And he was the first guy that said it, and it actually happened. And I mean, I've been to Japan twice. I've got to go to Brazil. I've gone, it's like for 18 months, it was literally just... Nice. Yeah, and they were the nice, I mean, the best part was that they said, oh, what keyboard do you use? So I said, oh, I'm just saving up for this keyboard. And they said, no, we'll buy it as a welcoming gift. Oh, oh. Okay, which is like really nice. Yeah, so it was like, out, out of all the stuff I do with Jake, it's like, it's a friendship. It's a genuine friendship. And That's really nice. Yeah, and it, and, it, and it was so great that later down the line, I've been able to like, because of it, get on the property ladder and stuff like that. I've, I've grown as a person. I mean, I started in 2015, I think, or 16, I'm not sure. So it's only been three or four years. Um, but a gig like that, you grow and you understand. And that was the gig. Every, every musician, once they start touring, they'll have a tour where, or a particular artist they work with, where it will teach them 
how to be on tour and how to work. And the good thing about Jake Buck is they're very, like, we're all mates. And so I don't know. That's the best way to be, right? Yeah. The feeling on stage is very yeah. different. Very, yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it, it, and to be honest with you, I was, like, before I was, I did Jake Buck, I was quite sheltered in terms of not, I didn't really understand how the music world worked and touring. And I, I'd done tours before, but with those tours, like, you, a lot of times when you go on tour, you almost, prepare yourself and you kind of tense a bit because you're like I don't know what's going on I don't I'm going to be on a bus with like people I don't know and you're going to see how people are naturally and the habits are going to come out you know what I mean like when I do the streets there's there's a certain vibe there when I do uh, like JP Cooper there's a there's a every tour has a different type of vibe and obviously it's different characters but with Jake Bug that's the one gig where I don't have to worry about how I need to be or I don't need to worry about you know this person's gonna be there or this might happen or that might happen. Like, we're all very chilled. Nice. Yeah, which is which is cool. So, um, Nice way to start out doing international yeah, touring. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have chosen it for any other gig. And so it was just really great because it just, even in terms of he's very, when we go away, anywhere we go, he'll say, one of the days, let's all meet up and have dinner together, which is great. And any time, I mean, we did some shows last week and it was only in Liverpool, but, we were like, he was like, yeah, after rehearsal, let's all go to a steak place nice. and we'll all sit together and just have a meal. And it's and it's really nice and it's really, he's very grounded, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So being on tour with him. So was there anything during the, the first uh, tour with Jake where you learned some lessons? I've got to remember this is a... The biggest one. This was the biggest one. I always, before Jake, I always had an issue with time. And it wouldn't be every time, every now and again, because at the time I, I didn't drive. So I, I was really subject to public transport and it was more my time management. And so there'd be times where I'd say, oh, I need to get here for 12. And I'll say, oh, well, I'll leave at 10.30. And somehow 10.30 becomes 11. And I'll never forget, and this was the biggest lesson ever. And not many people know this, but there was a situation where one of the first gigs we did, we did sound check and then it was like, sound check's finished, be back at this time. And um, I went across London, the, the gig was in somewhere like Kentish Town, and I went across London to get something done and come back. And I didn't judge the time. And I went to come back, there was a delay on the trains, so like a big delay. And I'm underground, which means I have no reception to call and say. Mm -hmm. And I underestimated the time, I didn't manage my time properly. And I'm on my way back to the gig to go and play. I think we're supposed to be on stage at like, I wasn't late, but I was supposed to be back by nine because we got on stage at 9.30 and I didn't get back until 25 past nine. And I remember, yes, yeah, really, I'll never forget, I remember getting out of the train station and running across the road to the venue and there was a security guard who was obviously letting people in and checking tickets. And as I was coming to the security guard, he had a walkie talkie and he was like, oh, I think I see him, he's here, relax, he's here. And I thought, I said, have you guys been waiting for me? He was like, yeah, they're really, they're really like. And I remember going in and just manager was just like, where have you been? And I was just like, oh, I'm sorry. Da, 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 da. So it's all right, let's just go on stage. Went on stage, played the set, played my heart out. Everyone's happy, it's great. And so I'm settling and then the manager, one of the managers say, can I have a word with you? I said, yeah. And he took me into a room, a small room. And it, I thought it was just gonna be me and him. He took me into a room and it was me, him, the band and Jake. And he just was like, you can't do that. You can't just disappear and just not show up. And there's a, we were planning, we were changing the set, we were getting, we were changing songs because we were, we thought we wouldn't, we'd have to do the gig without you. 
and he just kind of laid into me a little bit. And all I could say was, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry. And then Jake was like, it's fine, just don't do it again. Jake's really laid back, but management are management. Sure. And he's got two managers and one of them's like, he's passionate. And because I didn't really understand him, I took it a bit personal at first. Like the band were like, they're always like, don't worry about it. Yeah, but you know, there, there's a lot of situations where people will say to your face, oh, it's fine, it's okay, don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. But then they turn around, they talk to the business people, no, let's get rid of him, let's find yeah. somebody else. Yeah, it's true. I just don't need that headache, yeah. I don't need that stress. Yeah, exactly. That. And, it, and normally it takes just one time and that's it. Yeah. But thank God I, I can play it. But after that, I made a vow, I said, I'm going to do my best to never be late ever again. And if I'm being honest, to go even further and not to get too deep into this, culturally, I think I come from a family where, not that everyone's late, but with time, people don't understand how important it is. I think that was the point for me where I was like... There's elements of that in my family too. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it's not a cultural thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. but it, it, that was the point for me where I was like, I can't be late. I can't be late because it shook me up a little bit and I was like, okay, I mean, and now they, they make jokes and they say, we laugh about it. And I'm like, yeah, but it's fine. And it was- But it stuck there. Yeah. It stuck there. And it's, it's very hard. Anything like that, a negative is very, very hard to yeah, get rid of. It's true. And I just think it goes back to what I was saying about the show business. You really have to, when it comes to business, you really have to have things like that down because all it takes is for, for some, even for me now being in charge sometimes, yeah, I can't deal with that because it's going to be long. It's just, uh, let me just get someone that I know will be on time. So I completely understand where his head was at and how and why he felt the way he felt. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it goes without saying now these days, I think you always have to be on time. But... And being a side man, do, uh, do you offer opinions or do you wait until you're asked? I read the situation. I'm quite a sensitive person, so I like to think I'm good at reading the room. So I, at this point now I can gauge, but there are situations where it also depends on how the person's going to take it as well. Because there's certain people that won't ask for advice. But if you put it on the table for them, they'll say, oh, that's a fair point. But there's also other people where if you give them advice, they don't want advice. Sometimes people just want you to listen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they don't actually want you to give an opinion. They just want something. Yeah, they just want to too many prepared. cooks thing, right? Yeah, spoiling the broth and then yeah, yeah, that stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's true. But I think it depends on the person. If I feel like I can't, I won't. I feel like if they really want to hear my opinion, they'll ask. Mm-hmm. But there are, like, for example, Jake Bug, I know I can give ideas and he will make his decision whether he wants to take them or not. But if he doesn't, it's not a bad thing. It's just the options there. Whereas with JP Cooper or even Mike Skinner, he will ask for advice. Mm-hmm. But I also learned that through trial and error because I remember when we were preparing one of the sets for Mike and he had a song called Stay Positive. And it was probably like the second day I'd met him. And I said to him, well, maybe we can do this and this and this. And he said something like, maybe we can just leave the song how it is. And I didn't get it first time. But then when I thought, I went home and thought about it, I was like, he's protective over his music, which makes perfect sense. Or he has a concept and he has a view on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, and it needs to be that. And then so going forward, what I knew is that I don't need to give him an opinion when he wants it, he'll ask. Mm -hmm. And you just make a mental note and you don't take it personally and get upset. You're just like, that's just how he works. Yeah. 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 You don't judge him by it. You just realize he's a professional and he has his view on it. Yeah. And my position is to support that. Yeah. Yeah. And literally there were times where he'd say, "I, I just want something to sound like this. And he wouldn't say exactly what he wanted, he would just give me an idea. And that was his way of saying, I'm giving you free reign to do what you want within these boundaries, which worked really well. So I suppose it's just gauging how people talk and how they communicate and realizing, okay, 
this is what you like and this is what you don't like and that's another key understanding an artist as well because mm. if you get it right there can be times where you can finish off their sentence and um, I, and that goes back to being sensitive and kind of taking yourself out of the way and understanding I'm here to do a job for them and if you do it well enough what happens is that they start to trust you so for example with well, that's the key they start to yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. like with Mike which is great he got to the point where he was he gave me free reign so he's like when we start the show I want you just to play some stuff for the intros now I get to go on stage first and play like a minute of just strings and he doesn't say what and every now and again I change it and we had our last show of the year and I changed it a little bit just to make it interesting and it's nice because it's almost like he trusts you and the thing is with with Mike which is great and I, I respect about him is that he's not the emotional type that will say I love da 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 like he will just he will respect what you do but in a blue moon he'll say I really like the way you did da, 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 da. Right. and he's just that person he's like a, you know when you're young and you want to make your dad proud mm. and it's like you have to try really hard to make him proud but when you do it in that once every eight years he'll say oh, I'm really proud of you and it's sweet and it feels sweet yeah. but it's like he's that type of person where he's not always going to say it all the time but he will kind of say look I'm giving you free reign and if you do it right you'll know kind of thing which is really cool and it's interesting working with different artists because it's taught me how to deal with different people and I think it's that's another skill just learning to be a bit of a chameleon and understanding that not everybody's going to be the same how you deal with this person isn't going to be how you deal with this person that's right yeah which is it's, a, it's a, I'm realising now it's a bit of a journey and it takes a lot of time and I suppose you'll never complete that journey but what you can do is do your best to learn as much as you can and the more you learn the more you're going to stand out I suppose which is mm -hmm. cool we are going to have to pause the conversation here because we have come to the end of episode one of two episodes titled Tour Musicians with our very special guests, John Althram and Mike Patrick. This episode was recorded at The Joint, the central London rehearsal studios. You can find them at thejoint.org.uk. Our guest musicians playing along with the conversation were Joe Sherrill on bass and Peter Meyerhofer on hand pan. The music was recorded at the Sync Lodge Recording Studio in Vienna, Austria. You have been listening to the Sync Lodge podcast series, Exploring Music. My name is Lionel Lodge, and I thank you very much for joining us. Till next time, be nice to one another.